Two and a Half Admins, episode 84. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is should I upgrade to OpenZFS 2.1? Yeah, so we just uh, offer a rundown of what the features are in 2.1 and uh, let you decide if uh, you want to take your storage down to upgrade it. Well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And something that happened just after we recorded two weeks ago. The NPM package, Node IPC, was updated with what can only be described as protestware. It deleted a bunch of files on people's computers, but only if they were in Russia or Belarus. I would disagree with you that it can only be described as protestware. Malware works quite well, in my opinion. True. So this was basically the developer's second foray in as many weeks into complaining about Russia's invasion of Ukraine using his GitHub repository, basically. Uh, His first effort just dropped a text file that uh, said some uncomplimentary things about the war. Uh, The text file itself already kind of had some people panicking a bit because once that package that he had created, he added it as a dependency to Node IPC, and people who had deployed that package, when they updated it, all of a sudden they see like a random text message with, you know, political garbage in it, and they have no idea where it came from. So you get a lot of sysadmins who quite reasonably panic and delete everything and reload from scratch. Now, that bit you can just call protestware. But his next effort was the one which overwrote every single file that the program could reach and had permission to with the heart emoji. That's not protestware. That's just plain old malware. It's no better than any form of crypto ransomware. It deletes everything it can get hold of, effectively. No es bueno. Yeah, like possibly even worse than ransomware because it's it's not even offering the option of maybe getting your data back. <laughs> There's no decryptor for overwriting it with the heart emoji. Well, sure there is. There's the exact same decryptor. Go to backup. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's worse than ransomware because maybe the ransomware jackass will you know give you a key to decrypt your files with. That's usually useless anyway. Right. Even if they give you the key, most people discover that it's quicker to reload from backup than to try to decrypt all the crap. So, no, I'm, I'm not going to give one or the other a, a better than grade. It's it's malware either way. Uh, the one thing I will say for the ransomware people is at least they're accomplishing something for somebody, you know, themselves, and it's stealing your money, but accomplishing something. This guy, Brandon Nozeki Miller, a.k.a. RIA Evangelist, uh, who is the author of Node IPC and this malware that we're speaking of, he targeted uh, you know, users in Belarus and Russia with this you know, data overwriting. I mean, it amounts to a freaking war crime. You know, what he's going to hit is basically all the civilian infrastructure. Hardened targets like military and, you know, serious government are not going to be just auto-updating, you know, with, with no backup. Yellowing NPM modules from GitHub. Exactly. But, you know, tremendous numbers of, you know, websites and packages and and you name it that are within those territories will. And people who use packages that, you know, include that package will get nailed and a lot of them will not have any backup. One of the most controversial and and flashy things that came out of that was a comment on uh, Miller's GitHub repo that claimed that the person leaving the comment ran an NGO that, uh, you know, supported journalists on the ground in Belarus and Russia and lost 30,000 messages, you know, never to be regained because it got hit with this malware. Nobody's been able to verify that. 
that may have happened, it may not have happened. It really doesn't much matter apart from being good theater because at the end of the day, it's still, you know, this guy targeted all civilian infrastructure in two countries. That's an act of war committed as an individual with zero sanction, backing, or approval of any nation, state, group, or even militia group. Just this dude decided, I'm going to go to war with Russia and Belarus. Yeah, and I'm going to drag all of open source down with me. Because, you know, a, a lot of the, the follow from this has just been, if you shake people's trust in the way open source software works and is managed and developed and packaged, then that can be bad for everyone. No, I think at this point, it's clear nobody should be blindly trusting NPM for anything. The highest profile incident, I suppose you'd call it, a similar incident, you know, coming out of NPM was LeftPad. LeftPad is an insanely trivial package that lots and lots of other packages call as a dependency. It does exactly what it sounds like. It, uh, you know, it, it, it puts leading spaces into a string. Uh, this is not something that I would normally think anybody should need to pull in as a dependency. But because of the way JavaScript developers, just, just that community kind of tends to operate, there's an enormous amount of package dependency creep to the point that a high-level package may have hundreds or even thousands of dependencies that it really should not, many of them very trivial, and when the author, like the left pad author did, just pulls their package in a fit of peak, that can be enough to break, you know, hundreds or even thousands of other packages that depended on it. Yeah, everybody's CI was like, oh, I went to build our software today and one of the dependencies doesn't exist anymore, so I couldn't compile. Yeah, which, you know, again, though, it's not the same thing as what Miller did. Because when LeftPad got pulled, it made some folks have an unpleasant day and have to replace, you know, that package somewhere else. The NPM maintainers themselves ended up accepting a, uh, I, I think at first they just rolled back an earlier version and like approved it, which is very much not normal. And then somebody else took ownership of LeftPad. But again, it's just, it's kind of an annoying day. It's it's an enormous difference from something going on to, you know, NPM updating what had been a useful package into something that wipes all the data off of your system. There's just absolutely no freaking excuse for that. I haven't done it yet because I was hoping to get a little bit more community input, but I personally am planning to put a pledge on my own projects that you, know, you may rely that none of these projects will be weaponized <laughs> on this repository. If you download it from here... The repo maintainer guarantees that there will not knowingly be any weaponization of this product to destroy data or screw up your day. But what is that worth beyond your word, which is kind of how open source works already? Well, it's usually how open source works, but clearly not always. I think it provides a little bit of extra ammunition to not forgive somebody who pulls this shit. Mm. There are some people who are already talking about, you know, when... Brandon Miller can be forgiven and brought back into the community. Now, the vast majority of us, you know, we answer that question with never. He blew it. He's done. I will never trust any open source code of his. I would never hire him to write any code again from now until the day he dies. You know, there are just some mistakes that you cannot come back from. As far as I'm concerned, he needs to find a new career. With that said, not everybody is quite as vindictive about that. And I think that if Miller had been a part of a community that had the societal norm of saying, I pledge not to weaponize this repository, maybe he would have thought it through a little bit further before he just decided to go and do that in a fit of peak. 
it, it seems to me pretty clear from his initial reactions when people started complaining and, and filing bug reports, for lack of a better word, on, a, on his GitHub repository, his initial reaction was very self-righteous. I think it came as a big surprise to him that the open source community as a whole didn't respond with just, yeah, go Brandon, stick it to those evil Russians. And it really raises the question about how many of the open source projects you depend on are really controlled by a single person. You know, a lot of the projects that I think about when I think about big open source stuff are, you know, large teams of people and, and it would be hard for one person to do something like that. But especially when you get into the dependencies, a lot of things pull in. Oftentimes you do get down to that's, it, you know, this is one guy's project. And if that guy just stops updating it, that's could be a, a whole problem. But, you know, when they maliciously update it or, you know, decide that they're going to change it in a way that makes it not suitable anymore. You don't usually get any warning and often don't have much recourse. This also brings us back to, you know, a drum that I've been beating for a couple of decades now. So many Linux users, they get real up in arms about saying that their distros repositories are stale and they want just absolutely the most bleeding edge software straight from the developer but they want it to come in, you know, in the package. They want to just be able to apt install literally exactly what's on the developer's page. And I've been beating this drum for a couple of decades, like I said, saying that's that's not actually a good idea. The distro is not just getting in the way and slowing things down because it sucks. It's an extra layer of insulation between you and, you know, more bleeding edge code that may have problems. It's more sets of eyes. Now, I'm not going to tell you that every maintainer of every package you know, in every distributions, especially universe repository. It's not like, you know, this is some kind of ironclad guarantee there'll never be a problem, but it is at least, at least one more typically very senior system administrator between you and any potential problems. That's a very good thing to have. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, to your other side of your point, a lot of it is, well, it turns out lots of things depend on this and you want to make sure all of them work with that newer version before you start shipping that newer version. Because otherwise you end up with, oh, so we updated this package to the latest version. Now half the things that depend on it don't work because some interface changed or something. And so there's usually a reason why the, the packages aren't always that quick. Or, you know, even in FreeBSD, we have two different repos. We have the one where versions really only change once a quarter unless there's a security update. And then there's the one where churn happens every single day. Because uh, sometimes you just want your machine to be mostly stable for a couple of months at a time, not there are 800 new package updates every single day. Yeah, I really kind of wanted to to bring in the FreeBSD community in the whole, like, you know, complaining about software being stale. But when I started to, I realized I don't really remember FreeBSD users doing that kind of complaining very much. That seems to be more of a Linuxy user complaint. Well, with the ports tree, you kind of, you have your choice of the kind of three-month-old version of it or... The ports tree itself is usually pretty close to up to date. Like if you look at, I think there's a website called Repoology or Repology, something like that, and it tracks the currentness of repos across all the different OSs and, and FreeBSD is usually pretty up there. And for FreeBSD itself, there's fresh ports, right? Yeah. Uh, and that website makes it easy to see, you know, what everything is. And uh, one of the things they added to that fresh ports website is when you're looking at a package, you can see what version is available in the quarterly branch and what version is available in the latest branch so that you can tell that, oh, the reason why I don't have the newest one is because they're not going to bring that back to the the stable branch because 
Uh, it's just a version update. It's just new features and that risks breaking things. And I can switch to it if I want, but I have to make that choice. Yeah. So we kind of covered this already. One of the things that distribution repositories tend to do is they track security upgrades and feature upgrades separately. And in order to keep things stable and make sure the dependencies don't get broken during the life of a particular distribution release, you're not typically going to include feature upgrades. Instead, they're going to backport security upgrades into the version of that package in the repositories. Now, the primary reason for that, like we said, is to avoid dependencies potentially breaking when syntax changes or perhaps you know a bug might get introduced in a brand new feature that unintentionally breaks something else that shouldn't have. Either way, you get kind of insulated from that. But the other thing is, if you were building a package that, and I don't think this is actually a thing right now, in the JavaScript community, everybody is pretty much just tracking NPM. But if you were building a package and relying on distribution repository versions of the same package as a dependency, if that were such a thing with this particular package, you would not have gotten hit with Nozaki Miller's bug. Because when he introduced this crap, I mean, it was full on malware style. It looked like somebody hacking a WordPress site. You had base 64, you know, obfuscated routines that did this garbage with, uh, you know, overriding all the data with emojis. And there's absolutely no way that a distribution maintainer looking to separate, you know, security upgrades from feature upgrades is going to see calling a base 64 encoded function showing up new in the code and be like, oh, yeah, let me just go ahead and stick that right on in there to be, you know, version 1.x dash Ubuntu 18 for backports. It's no, it's not going to happen. Also, just the time frame part of it, you know, you're you're saying at this point when you do track the distributions version of it, even just getting a couple of weeks worth of insulation in between you and potentially breaking changes in the vendor's version of the code means that even if technically a distribution might maintainer might not have caught something like this, it's going to blow up before it would have reached you. So you as the end user don't really have to worry about it because your distribution is going to shield you from it. Even in cases where something like that manages somehow to make it all the way through down to the distribution side, as far as figuring out how to recover from you know all the dependencies, again, your distribution is going to take that care of that for you. You don't specifically need to. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. I keep seeing the name Lapsus in my RSS feeds in tons of headlines. This is a hacking group, I suppose you would call it. And whether it's Microsoft, NVIDIA, all sorts of companies, it seems that this is a very competent hacking group, not only technically, but also when it comes to the social engineering side of things. 
It's hard to say that in particular, but they managed to compromise the some computers at a call center. That was the support center for Okta or Okta, uh, which is a single sign-on provider. So 366 big companies like Microsoft, NVIDIA, Cloudflare, etc., outsource single sign-on to Okta, which basically means you get, instead of having a different username and password for, you know, Slack and email and and this web service and that web service, you have this one thing, maybe with a good two-factor even, and it means you can use the one login and one two-factor setup to log in for everything, and it's generally a good thing. Yeah, if, if I could break in for a second, uh, if, if anybody out there is not sure what that means, it's just like when you go to some completely non-Google-affiliated website and they offer you a chance to sign in using your Gmail account or your Facebook account. It's federated authentication, which means you can use an unrelated third party. The third party gives you a token that allows you to log into the other person's site because that other organization trusts the single sign-on provider. And so they never see your password. They just get a token that says, yes, this person authenticated successfully with Google or Facebook, or in this case, Okta. And so, yeah, this is basically provides something like signing with your Google account, except for signing with your work account for all these different big companies. The problem is that, you know, we have, we have two-factor on that, so it's going to be extra safe and it shouldn't be able to get easily compromised. But it turns out they managed to compromise the call center where support is outsourced for this stuff. And it turns out that they have access to internal tools that let them do things like reset your password and disable two-factor authentication or, or reset recover your two-factor authentication. Uh, so that allowed the hackers to just take over accounts of random people at these big companies and start stealing things and leaking things. Yeah, and I think that one of the things we have to cover here is the idea is that, well, it's good to federate your single sign-on like this and use something like Okta because they know what they're doing, so they'll do a better job of it than your in-house people will. The problem with that approach is that it, while it may or may not be true that Okta will be more technically competent at building, you know, the, the authentication platform than you could in-house, you've put your egg in the same basket with lots and lots and lots of other very large, very tasty eggs. So now Okta becomes this amazing target that no one of the hundreds and really thousands of companies that are doing business with it individually, none of them are the target that all of them are. If you compromise Okta and then you can get into everything and it's difficult to overstate the combined value of all these targets, because when we talk about businesses that are using Okta for single sign on, it ranges all the way from, you know, mom and pop small businesses up to enormous enterprises. Uh, I first encountered Okta personally when I was working for a Condé Nast subsidiary. So when you talk about Condé Nast using Okta, you talk about something like a third of the really high-profile news sites on the internet fall under that umbrella, and they're all using Okta. And they're using Okta to authenticate for everything from, you know, WordPress platforms to ERP, enterprise resource planning stuff, to, you know, human resources, everything gets lumped into it because it's not just that this company, along with lots of other companies, uses Okta for single sign-on for something. Generally, once an enterprise signs on with somebody like Okta, they use that to authenticate with everything internally. Frequently, even like Windows Active Directory will get federated out to Okta. So the single source of truth for everything inside enormous enterprises is Okta. That's what got compromised. Yeah. The most interesting thing here is it's 
we, you know, we don't really know the motivations of the, the, the attackers and so on. It's not clear that they were targeting Okta so much as that they stumbled into this call center provider and came across these tools and were like, oh, look what we can do now. Or if they specifically targeted them because of Okta. But it really goes to show, you know, the, the selling point of something like Okta is like, this way you'll have two-factor on everything. And it'll be the same two-factor on everything because really nice. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with it, but having six different two-factor apps on your phone is really annoying. But what it ended up meaning was that they they compromise this one and they get everything. But really, the thing it goes to show the weakness with two-factor is always, well, what happens if my phone stops working? And usually the answer to that is you call a human and a human sorts it for you. Except for it's usually easier to trick a human into giving you access when you shouldn't have it than to trick a computer. Well, that's what I was talking about, the social engineering side of it. Well, yeah, because, you know, when I first saw a couple of these headlines, I assumed they just called the call center, social engineered, and reset some two-factor and got in. But it turns out they actually compromised the network of the call center and were able to get access to basically the Okta internal tools they gave the call center to do things like password resets. So I guess the question is, does that mean that the Okta admin tools don't have two-factor authentication? Everything modern above a certain size is basically built on a foundation of shit. And if you dig far enough, you're going to get down to it. People claim that they've eliminated, you know, the single points of failure and the security issues and this and that and the other, but they never have. You, you maybe have to dig past a few more layers to get to it, but you always get down to the pile of dung at the bottom if you just keep digging. I think a, a related thing here that I want to hit on briefly is I mentioned how it becomes a security problem when you use a big federated service like Okta because you have placed your own vulnerability in the same basket with lots and lots and lots of really high-profile targets, so you become more likely to get targeted by more sophisticated attackers. This doesn't only apply to, you know, federated single sign-on like Okta. You can also see examples of that in things like, you know, the use of TeamViewer or LogMeIn versus just spinning up your own internal, you know, VPN to give yourself access to built-in tools like RDP or readily available third-party tools like No Machine that are self-hosted. When you self-host this stuff, the downside is, yes, you have to learn how to do it and, you know, perhaps your employees won't be the best in the world at setting it up. This is a real problem. And this is one of the selling points that the folks who, you know, build third-party solutions, third-party cloud-hosted solutions really, really hammer on. But again, the flip side is, if you did it in-house, somebody would have to target you specifically to compromise it. Whereas when you just turn it over to this enormous collection of targets, whether it be Okta or whether it be a remote access provider like LogMeIn or TeamViewer or, you know, what have you, if that provider gets compromised, you know, you just get rolled up in it. Yeah. And uh, some of the links in the show notes have more details on what happened, but there's some really uh, damning stuff in here like, the password spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the call center provider discovered uh, a security incident on its VPN gateways on a legacy network. So they had some old VPN that nobody remembered was still running and nobody has ever changed the passwords on and probably didn't have two-factor and wasn't using Okta. Well, that's never happened before. <laughs> We've never even talked about that, have we? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a spreadsheet of passwords because there always is. Like I said, you know, when... We, you just got to do a little digging and you always get down to that foundation of just dung pile at the bottom. But the best part is, is the spreadsheet is called DOM admins, as in domain admins for Windows, dash LastPass. 
So they were using a password manager and they used the functionality to export the password manager to a spreadsheet. <laughs> Humans, they, they do not change. You know, that's the flip side of that. We, we talk about how it's almost always easier to social engineer your way into a supposedly secure organization because you just get a human on the phone and they break the rules. They can be convinced to break the rules and give you access the flip side of that, unfortunately, is if you're supporting large numbers of humans, you need that because the humans who are supposed to be getting authenticated and truly are authorized to get in, they're also really, really bad at this stuff and will screw it up. And if you're really rigid with your security procedures, you end up locking out a huge segment of your workers who just cannot and will not conform to real security procedures. This is why you have to do security in layers like an onion, because the, you will have some employees that can be fully compliant with truly high security procedures. But if you're operating at any kind of scale, a huge number of your employees just absolutely are not competent and will not be competent to function in that high security environment. And so there have to be compromises made. And the only thing you can really do is build everything in layers to mitigate the damage caused when one of those compromises inevitably happens at the lower rung where people just can't be bothered to do it right. Yeah, it turns out that unlike what a computer would do, it's not acceptable for the support people to be like, you forgot your password or you tried too many times to log in and then you your phone doesn't work. Well, I guess you just can't work until somebody vouches for you. Yeah, one early really high profile example of that was the Matt Hanen Twitter hack uh, way back in the day. Uh, Wired author Matt Hanen, he had the very valuable three-letter Twitter handle, at M-A-T. And uh, between the fact that it was a three-letter Twitter handle and that it was his handle, you know, as a high-profile author at a high-profile website, there were some ne'er-do-wells who really, really wanted access to it. And Matt refused to sell it when they, you know, tried to offer him $10,000 for it. So they just started looking to see, okay, you know, what's securing this? You know, what do you need to reset to get from here to there to the other? And ultimately what lost the account for Matt is he had a web of trust in there that came down eventually to iCloud. Uh, if you could get control of his iCloud account, then you could issue a string of password resets that would get you all the way down to being in control of that Twitter account. And that's what happened. And that was a huge mistake on Hanan's part because the reality of it is Apple cannot be that level of security to keep a, a three-letter Twitter handle secure. They can't because their bread and butter with the iCloud product is Joe and Jane six-pack at home. And when Joe and Jane six-pack at home forget their password, you have to have an avenue for them to call up and seem authentic and like a distressed real user and bend the rules and reset their password for them. Because if you don't, those users will leave your service because it doesn't suit them. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Christopher has done. He writes, I'm looking to wire up my new home and finally replace my ubiquity switch. And I'm looking for a good brand for a managed switch or two. Looks like I'm going to need an at least 10 port switch and a couple of power over ethernet ports. I'm a little too happy to sysadmin at home, and the only real features I'd need would be span ports, 802, 1X, and VLAN tagging. 
I'm very comfortable with software, but I don't know much about hardware. I'm about a decade past from when I last touched Cisco iOS, and I'm hoping there might be other products that are reasonably performant and reliable for home use that can meet these minimum feature sets. Network load around my house is pretty light, so I don't need a ton of concurrent throughput. My traffic within the home very rarely has more than 100 megabits of concurrent traffic through the switch. P95 Max is about 40 megabits. Yeah, so uh, I've got great news for you. Uh, All you need is TP-Link Jetstream. It's readily available on Amazon, Newegg, and pretty much anywhere. If there is a a professional IT shop in your area, they will probably also have them locally in stock. They're cheap, they're high performance, the feature set is great, they're easy to administer. Yeah, I would second that. I have some older Netgears that will do that, that are sub $200, but I would much prefer the the TP-Link that... uh, Jim is recommending. Yeah, I've used both TP-Link and Netgear, and the TP-Link is far better for this particular application. And for pretty much everything. (laughs) Okay, William writes in, is it worthwhile hosting my own authoritative DNS server for my domain? I'm looking at doing this to eliminate relying on a single point of failure, such as Cloudflare. In addition, I wanted to implement my own authoritative DNS servers on the same VPS that is being used for my mail server. Is there a way of also implementing a recursive DNS server as well that can be accessed locally via the VPS and not the outside world to avoid the open resolver issue? I'm looking at implementing PowerDNS in order to achieve this. Uh, The short answer is yes, it's absolutely worth hosting your own DNS, in my opinion. Um, It's a great learning experience, if nothing else, and it's really just not that difficult. I would not particularly advise PowerDNS. My personal standing on this is if you're going to run your own DNS, do it right, do bind, just like the big kids do. It is not difficult. It can do everything that you want. Uh, You can very easily uh, allow recursion from local host, but not from other machines, which accomplishes your goal of, you know, wanting to have your own locally cached DNS and not opening it to the outside world. You can make a, a short ACL and just say, you know, everything on my internal address space or everything on my VPN even can use it as recursive, but nobody from the outside world. You can do that. You can absolutely do separate views. You can use ACLs to create a view, you know, and call them like inside and outside. And you can even give different answers to queries on the same zone from one view to the other. But all that's probably more complicated than than what he actually asked for, which was just, I want to be able to use it on this server and nowhere else. You don't even need to set up views for that. You can literally just allow recursion locally, but not elsewhere. The only other thing I would say is... Uh, As long as you understand the limitations, uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with you having, you know, only one source of DNS. Like if you've only got one server that matters for that domain anyway, like all you're really doing is, you know, mail and web and that's all in one box. It may not really matter much to you to have a redundant DNS provider because what's it going to accomplish when the thing that does the work is down? You will at least need to make sure that you've got multiple public DNSs available on that virtual machine so that you can trick your domain name registrar into thinking that you have an NS1 and an NS2 because most of them won't allow you to set up, you know, a single glue record to one IP address for your domain. You'll need two authoritative IP addresses. Uh, Of course, you can also just get a service like DNS Made Easy or someone and have them basically be the secondary for you. They'll basically, their name servers will reach out to your bind and copy the zone and basically keep a copy on their servers so that somebody else can answer when you're down and they have, they do any cast and everything. So their DNS servers can also be faster than yours, but they will 
you know, your DNS server will call out and tell them, hey, I just changed the zone file and they'll update very, very quickly. So you're not going to introduce, you know, huge delays or anything. Did you just sneak an affiliate link into our show notes, Alan? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's the only one I have an affiliate thing for. I've not had to pay for my DNS Made Easy service for like five years from just throwing this in the podcast occasionally and somebody signs up for a $100 account. Filthy bastard. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Jar Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.